Episode 4, Passion and Fire. Hi, everybody. My name is Marcus Knight, and welcome back to Make Impact Movement podcast series, the podcast series that looks to inspire and motivate social ventures to go out into the world and make it a better place. I'm here this morning with Amina Stark. Hi, Amina. How's it going? I'm wonderful. And you? I'm very, very good. Uh, Very early. I don't tend to get up this early, but it's awesome that this is the first time I've done this, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, so Amina is a consultant, uh, that works in South Bend, Indiana, correct? Correct. Okay, great. And, uh, she does amazing work, uh, and I want her to be able to share her background, uh, her current work. And so you all can learn a little bit more about her and how she impacts the world and make it a better place, especially in, uh, uh, Indiana, uh, because the bulk of your work is in Indiana, correct? It isn't like outside of the state. Correct. Okay. All right. So, Amina, with no further ado, uh, just let us know who you are and, you know, provide anything else that uh, that you think is important to know about you and your beginnings and your, your, your personal philosophy. Um, so, I'll say when I start to talk about myself, I start with childhood and just childhood experiences. I was a child that was very inquisitive and would often sit and talk to older people because I wanted to know about the world. Um, I was very inquisitive. Um, I remember there was a older um, African-American man in our neighborhood that was a sharecropper. So Mm -hmm. I had to be like 13 sitting on his porch talking to him about sharecropping and his his struggle that he had to endure um coming through that um from the south and how he migrated to Michigan City, Indiana. So I began to um do a lot of reading on my own, um, but I found myself being kind of um guided toward this work. So um, when I graduated from high school, I actually met a lady that ran a program called Helping Our People Excel. And it was mm-hmm. one where they did after school tutoring programs. And and she wanted me to be a part of her program. And at that time, I was pregnant. I was a, pre- a teenage mom. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm getting ready to go to school. I had this little baby. My teachers really pushed me to further my education. Um, And so I remember enrolling in classes and going to Indiana University Northwest with with this little baby that I had to take care of. And that summer, I I got straight A's that first semester, right? So I'm like, oh, these people are on to something, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And so I ended up reading the newspaper and I came across this ad that said Summer Youth Entrepreneur Camp. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Like, I'm interested in entrepreneurship. And so basically, this lady, Rebecca Williams, took these budding young people and had them develop this entrepreneur camp. She had the vision, but it was us that put our heads together to say, how can we make or teach these kids how to make money? to come out of the circumstances that they are in. It was the best experience I'd had my whole life, I tell you, because just (laughs) the joy of working with these these little people, the kids were between the ages of 10 to 18, and we were working with them on a newspaper, a canning company. We had a jewelry-making company. Um, Uh you know, a t-shirt making company. We did this, took these kids through looking at business plans. Um, and then we did a performance at the end. So we really did the performance on our struggles in the African-American uh-huh. community. That served as the fundraiser for the camp. And the day after the camp ended, we went on a historical tour throughout the United States. 
So we took these kids to slave quarters. We took them uh, to like Selma and walked across the bridge. Like, so we weren't only pouring into these kids. She was pouring into us, mm-hmm. right? She was teaching us our history and where our people come from and just the greatness that they did. And so when the school year came back around, I I ran toward that tutoring program. Um, she knew I was in school to get my bachelor's degree. At that point in time, I was going for, um, I wanted to be um, a physical therapist. Um, and so she was like, you know, there's a certification you can get once you graduate to become a certified prevention professional. And that'll teach you the skills for working with kids from an evidence-based perspective. And mm-hmm. so the more and more I came in contact with these kids, I learned that they just came from backgrounds that weren't too favorable. And if I can just pour little pieces into them, they could change their situation. Um, and so we worked for, with these kids year after year, during the school year, during the summer, you know, and I began to say, see these kids blossom. And so I went to all the training she taught me. She sent me and this guy named Theodore Williams to grant writing classes, just anything that we can do to strengthen our skills. She sent us through those classes. And I was always the one at the front of the class because I was so interested on how these things, these, this work, how people have studied it and tracked people for years to come out with evidence-based programs that could change a community and there are and those programs are sitting there and uh it's funny because and, and i'm not going to try to take away too much but I'm, I'm thinking as you're talking about evidence-based programs uh the use of those they aren't very widespread though right like in your experience outside of maybe the government no because you have a lot of nonprofits that or not even just nonprofits, just a lot of people that want to do their own thing. So what I began to see was when I looked at we, so a part of that work is doing an assessment of your community whenever you're trying to create change. So I was Mm -hmm. actually trained in the principles of drug abuse prevention with a social development overlay. And it talked about assessing a community, right? That's the begin of any type of work. You're going to a community and you assess it. You look at the protective, the risk factors and the protective factors. So you can actually decrease crime. You can decrease um, poverty. You can decrease um, gang violence by putting positive protective factors in a community. And they actually studied and did this in different areas and were able to see the community change, right? Yeah. So yep. I said, I said, I see these kids that I'm working with. Some of them was graduating, going off to college. Some of them were being locked up. Some of them, I was going to their funerals. Some of them were having more kids than I was having. Yeah. And so what we were taught to do was you have all these problems, go up the street. They're all falling down the river. They're falling down the river. Go up the stream to see what the problem is. Why are they attaching to these behaviors? Have you ever heard of the, uh, it's a parable by Saul Alinsky about downstream and, downstream and upstream? That's probably what they put in our training. Okay, yeah. it's it's And so, yeah, it's the same principles that you know uh these kids are out there they're they're at a bonfire as the parable goes and they saw all these babies babies falling off this waterfall and so everybody jumps into the water to save the babies out of the water and then someone who didn't jump into the water was like hey like wait where are the babies coming from right Right? so like how they even get to the point where they're falling off the waterfall and uh yeah it's that same type of logic what are we doing downstream and, and, and then work needs to be done downstream, but what are you doing to go upstream to figure out what's happening? Why are babies even falling off? But yeah, it's a, uh, yeah. Upstreaming is, is, is definitely what needs to happen, but I also feel like it's equally difficult to do. Right. I don't think it's that difficult to do because when you have a problem, you have so many people trying to make it work right so Mm -hmm. even if you look outside of the nonprofit world you see for profits they started their business to solve a problem right 
they started yep. off as a small business and they either came up with a product or a service that they have that could solve a problem. The problem is that there are so many people at the bottom working to fix the problem, but not enough people trying to prevent the problem upstream. Mm -hmm. yes. So when we look at prevention, treatment, and um, uh, there's there's a continuum, right? So prevention, if you preventively do something, you're going to save a lot more money doing that than incarcerating somebody, right? Yes, But there's absolutely. so much money going into incarceration. There's so much, there's money going into treatment, right? Mm-hmm. But are people well, really being treated? Oh, yeah, they're most likely just being housed, and I would say babysat. It's a continuation of slavery, which is happening. And I come to say, why can't we do something different? When I go to these meetings, I am the one sitting at the table saying, Think outside the box. Look at history to see what we did. You do not have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Does this does this process? So we looked at programs, practices, and processes, right? Mm -hmm. Is there a process that was implemented in the past that has good pieces in it that we can take? And fuse into it these productive, preventive things to make it a better model to use. And that's mm -hmm. what we began to do. So I continue my training by getting my, um, I end up train, uh, changing from working in the health field to working in the criminal justice field. My, my task began to save the kids that I was working with. I didn't want to be a probation officer, but I wanted to give them tools that they could use throughout their lives to be better people. And so we began the process of building people. That's awesome. I like that. Um, from there, you know, I did end up becoming the person that ran the after school program. I had 10 counties throughout Indiana where we ran this after school program. Um, mm -hmm. And then toward the end of the program, we began to do more community-based work. So we went from dealing mainly with just nonprofits to linking in businesses to help us. And that told us that there are five pieces of a community that need to work together to create a healthy environment. And so getting all those pieces together helps you to look at things from a 360 perspective instead of the flat plane that we had been looking at when we only look at nonprofits for solving problems. Would this be the Healthy 2020 initiative? Um, I think it was a little bit before that Healthy 2020 initiative when we did it. So um, I know that where did that initiative come from? Was it from the federal government that that came down? Yes, I think so. So I'm just, I'm, go ahead. I'm sorry. We worked through the um, mental health um, drug. We, uh, it was the SAP block grant from the federal government, substance abuse prevention, substance abuse prevention and treatment block grant. It came down through the federal government and it's given directly to the states. So the states actually would contract with different people to carry out their services. And so within the state of Indiana, they partnered with somebody called the Indiana Prevention Resource Center, which is directly in um, Indiana University, Bloomington. And then mm -hmm. they found us subcontractors to, to provide direct care for our communities. And what I liked about it was they gave us the tool, but we had the flexibility to implement it for our particular population. And that was an important piece of work because within a community, you can have um, a high poverty level. You can have the LBGTQ community. You can have um, refugees within your community. Um, you can have um, very a very alike community where... Mm -hmm. There's a lot of money in that community, but they're leaving their kids at a, at home and they're exposed. These kids have access. So they're latchkey kids. And so we learn no matter where you came from, 
all kids were at risk. Yep. Everybody's at risk. Not just the people in poverty, even the people that had a lot of money was at risk. So they gave money to us to decrease the number of people that were going into treatment and incarceration. So it turned into uh, communities that care, the continuum, uh, the, the, the system of care, just whatever mm-hmm. they could do to reduce drug usage within these communities. And this now, is like heavy drugs, right? Like, um, I'm guessing heroin? No, no. This is like even legal drugs. Our oh. main drug we focused on was alcohol. Oh. The legal one. Alcohol has so many things that it does to the brain. We began to research the brain and we began to look at how the brain didn't fully develop until the age of 26. And so every point of trauma, every substance that we entered into our body, it impacted our brain development. Oh, oh man. It, it, yeah. And it's funny because, uh, alcohol is very widely accepted. And, you know, it's not demonized as like, I guess, like marijuana, uh, but the impact's much more different on your body, correct? Or am I it just... Has a, it, it has a long, it, it's going to affect your brain, it's going to affect your liver. It's a, it's, people think it's a stimulant. They think they drink alcohol and they have this liquid courage. No, it depresses the system. <laughs> it makes you stupider. Depresses. You become very tired. You become very lethargic. And we began to study drugs and the impact that they had on a body. Yeah. Right? Because what we found out is people are hurting. They're hurting from maybe they were molested as a child. Maybe Mm -hmm. they were put in foster care. Maybe they had low self esteem. Maybe they, um, were traumatized they 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 you know there's so many issues you can have that affect a child growing up we learned if we could pour into the children we would not have to fix adults yep that's that's again like that's another powerful statement right if we do the and, and i think it's not intentional but uh i i really think people don't know how to engage young people uh and this is in my personal experience also uh, working with young people is that they don't feel like they're heard and people talk to them on a, on a certain level that they're they're not there yet. They're not on that level that needs that people are talking to them on. And so uh, I think a lot of people deal with young people in a way in which just isn't helpful until they reach the age where they can have those conversations with them, those adult quote unquote conversations. And at that point, you know, they're already they're already bogged down by all their trauma and their hurt and whatnot that now we have to wait another 10 years because they're, you know, they're trying to figure out life and working through all these issues that they're not ready to hear you and be open as much as they were when they were like seven or eight or 10, you know? Uh, You heard of adultism? No. What is that? Adultism is where we adults look down upon kids. Oh yeah. where you don't know anything as a child and because I am older than you I can tell you what to do how to do it and you need to listen to me oh yeah when in actuality you have a growing brain they're very inquisitive we started to bring them to the table to help us solve the community problems not the seven and the eight-year-olds, but there's a point in when you go through youth development, you go through all these different phases. We focus on the 10 to 14-year-olds because they were at a point of um, transition. So a 10-year-old is transitioning from the protection of the parent. The parent Mm -hmm. is a superhero, right? They're transitioning into middle school to their peers and then at the end of eighth grade there's another transition period that occurs when you go from eighth grade to ninth grade to where you're going into becoming an adult and you don't even really think 
adults know anything, right? Yep. This these periods was the time where you could put as much skills into a kid as you could to help them stir through steer through their adult life. So we would infuse them with asset development. We would just give them all these things to help buffer against the risk factors that they would face in the world. Mm -hmm. So when these kids became 17, 18, when we started looking at the community, we had a youth council to where these these kids came and they said, well, I don't think this is going to work. Or why don't we do this in the program? Or this what that voice became so powerful at the table because they were able to look at things in a way that we were never never able to look at. Yep, and that's what you want, right? That's how you know your program's effective, at least in in a very localized way, right? Like the kids are trying to give back and they're contributing to the development of the program. You have everybody at the table, so it's not just the adults; it's every sector of the community is present to solve the problem. Mm. And that makes yeah, that's awesome. Uh so so you you move from doing direct service, working with young people, pouring into them uh in in the most and I understand this completely in the most formative years, uh that that weird transition phase from being a tween to a teenager, uh to now you're you're consulting. Is that like your main that's your main thing right now, correct? Right. So when I um, left the world of um, when I actually took the job at the Swanson Center, that's when I was doing I was training adults. I was training adults to work with youth. And so Mm -hmm. I began to work a lot more with adults and helping them to solve problems and using these different effective strategies to solve whatever problem they was facing. So as I transitioned from that, I went and got my MBA because I saw how when we began to work at, at uh, when we began to work more with the business community, how some of the things that they do within the business should be applied to the nonprofit world. Oh, big to time. Make it run, to make it run better. So when we began to look at Six Sigma, the house, that that Toyota built, all these different things, it made sense to overlay this within the nonprofit world to get better results. And so that's why I got my MBA and I wanted to learn more about finances because you, you grants from the government, that's not the only way to make money. And that's what nonprofits would look. And we would begin to ask mm-hmm. them about sustainability. <laughs> Yep. And so once your grant runs out, is your program going to disappear or are you going to be able to allow it to keep going on? You have to have funders. You have to have fundraisers. You have to do things within that nonprofit to make sure it doesn't dry up. It's it's funny that you mentioned that. Uh, I had a conversation with someone else a couple of weeks ago, and this is just, you know, I met them at a coffee shop to kind of pick their brain. Uh, and, uh, this person was a consultant. They were, they were basically doing grants. And I was like, man, you know, it's crazy because the work you're doing right now, uh, I would imagine as you're doing this work, it, when you're working with nonprofits, these people, they're, they're thinking about their businesses. It's so limited, you know, uh, it's all about grant money, but what about, you know, diversifying how you bring in money to sustain your program? And, uh, I think they got offended because, you know, in, in a sense, what I was saying was that, you know, grants are important, but they're really not all that important. Uh, and they shouldn't be the, the star of the show in terms of how you bring in your bring in money for nonprofits, uh, because there's so many different ways to come to uh, to commoditize. Hope that's a word. <laughs> but mm-hmm. to 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 bring in money uh, using uh, products and services that you may create through your nonprofit or maybe donated or whatever, you know, may have you. Uh, but to think more differently about how do you sustain your nonprofit, because ultimately, as you, as basically what you were saying, it's a business, right? And and we right. need to think about it that there are a lot of processes and a lot of systems uh, that mimic the for profit world, and a lot of tools from the for profit world that can be used to better to better uh, uh, nonprofits. It's just kind of expanding our thinking around that. Sometimes we get very limited and stuck down on what we think nonprofit is. 
and and that's correct so how do we how do we look at nonprofits right we think of small businesses um small nonprofits doing this community work if we look at these huge nonprofits like um big brothers big sisters american mm-hmm. red cross these are nonprofits they bring in a lot of money they're not just writing grants and getting grants they have private investors investing in them they're having fundraisers they they angel investors yep there, there's so many ways, so many more ways to get money. They're becoming, you know, a lot of small businesses in the for-profit world are looking at minority certifications. There's, there's millions and billions of dollars that are set aside for minorities to start businesses, and they're not tapping. We're not tapping into it. You're saying all the right stuff. I'm over here grinning. <laughs> You're saying all the right stuff. No, yeah, exactly. Yep. But we, but we want to start a nonprofit. When I learned that they had a set aside for minority businesses, I said, I'm opening up a for-profit. That's why, that's why you have these for-profits out there. Trump, why do you think he went bankrupt so many times? Why do you think he started so many businesses, right? Do you, mm-hmm. do you not think he used his wives to start some of them businesses to get some of that minority money? Yeah, yeah. A lot of these, a lot of these people... When they learned, oh, the government is going to help minorities start their businesses, they said, oh, I'm going to give my wife 51% of my business. Yeah. And, so we're going to get more money. And that's a loophole. Uh, and I would like, again, speaking to someone else about this, and that, that's what will happen, right? You have maybe somebody from your business or your, your partner with a business, and they'll be a minority-owned business, and you'll use it, their certification basically to get the, the contract. It happens all the time. It is a huge issue in Chicago, at least. That I know happens of. all the time, but we don't know. We don't know of it, right? We don't yeah. know about hub zones. We don't know if we live in a distressed area that there is money. If I open up a business in that distressed area, the federal government will give me money to run my business. Yeah. But they're not talking to to us about that, right? Nope. We're having we're having people that know move into our communities and push us out. Why? No. Ignorance. Lack of knowledge. Waiting for Superman to come save us. And I tell people Superman is not coming. Nope. It's time for us to start researching and learning what it is. So in my consulting business, as I go and I tell people, like I'm a walking book of information, as I tell people, oh, I ran into this. Oh, I ran into that. Oh, I ain't ready for that yet. But can you come help me work on a grant? Did you not just hear me say, there is money (laughs) for your for-profit. I ain't trying to help you write a grant right about now. I can if if you have a system if you have a structure, I can help you to write your grants. But if you don't, now we got to do all this back work to get to oh, the yep. point of writing the grant. Yep. It, but a lot of organizations, especially the small ones, don't understand that uh, that background work needs to be done. It, it, it's a lot of work. It isn't just, you know, creating like a narrative because that's old school grant writing. Like when we talk about like it now, you have to have those measures. You have to have the way to evaluate. You have to have a strong logic and a rationale behind what you're doing. And that takes time. It just isn't something that you just kind of pull out of your butt three days before you write a grant. Which is why when a small nonprofit contacts you because they find out you're a consultant and you can do all of these things to help them, they then say, well, how much do you cost? Well, I have a sliding scale. So if you have a little money, I can work with you. If you have a lot of money, I can work with you. They choose to do nothing. They choose to do do nothing. Why do you think that is? I think there's a lot of fear. Fear in what this process is going to involve. There's fear of what if I grow too fast there are ego problems. People don't want somebody to come in and tell them what to do or how to do it better. That's that's why silos are created. Yeah. Yep. I'm going to run my little agency right here and I'm not going to collaborate with anybody. I'm just going to do the work that I'm doing here. 
and pray that it continues to go on. And you have all of these in communities working separately to solve a problem and they create all of the babies that are falling into the water. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I just, uh, and I, I, like I said, I, I, and this is before recording, but yeah, I, I completely agree. And it just sucks that, you know, you have all this brain trust uh, in these areas because, you know, people aren't stupid that live in distressed communities, right? It's a lack of resources. Uh, but you do see a lot of, uh, a lot of tension and a lot of siloing, uh, and it's all voluntary. People are doing this on purpose. Uh, and it's like, why, right? Uh, if, if we're all, if, if on, in one community, you have four organizations that are targeting the same issue, why aren't we all working together to make sure that, you know, we can do the best job that we can. And and why, right. And why are we letting them even come into our communities and tell us what to do with our community? Yeah. Why are they not asking us what kind of services do we want? What kind of programs do we want? What kind of processes do we want? Do we want do we want or need streetlights? Do yeah. we need the potholes fixed? Why are we not going to the zoning boards? Why are we not going to the community boards? Why are we not going to all of these places that make decisions for us in our communities to say I will not take it anymore. I am an invested member in the community. And, and, you, and, and you're talking about they in terms of like government agencies coming into communities or? I'm, I'm talking about nonprofits. I'm talk- Basically, what happens is they study us. Oh, yeah. They, they study what we like, what we don't like, and they market to us. You look mm-hmm. at the... And we used to teach kids this. Look at the advertising that we see. We we don't see any more tobacco advertising because of that class action suit that went in. But when you picked up the Jet magazine, you picked up the Ebony. It used to be so many advertisements for smoking cigarettes in there that looked so appealing to us. So many advertisements for Crown Royal, all these different things. Yeah. Same they type targeted of thing going us on, huh? heavily. They marketed to us heavily. Look at the li- the music that we're listening to. We are targeted because we have a buying power. We're going to buy the crap that they sell us. Mm-hmm. We're going to think it's the new best thing to have these Jordans that cost $150, $200, but I'm going to get that instead of paying my light bill. Yeah. Our, our values are not where they need to be for us to bring ourselves out of poverty. The the tools are there, but you got to work for them. You got to find them. Ain't nobody going to say, here, use this to bring yourself up. They don't give you the the lower paid job. They go give you the little below underwage job, make you work two and three jobs. So you can now be sick. You have cancer, you have diabetes, you have stress. Mm -hmm. So now you enter the healthcare system and they go use you as a guinea pig. Yep. No, yeah. I I I definitely think uh we and I and, and this is obviously about the you know the black community. And you know, and when we talk about distressed black communities, because not all of them are distressed, but the ones that are partic- that are distressed, uh it very much is. And as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, not only about, you know, co- companies and for profit businesses marketing. But uh, sometimes government agencies, you're right, they come in and uh, it may be a thing of, uh, I know you all, you know, you want this, right? Because this is very much pervasive in terms of your community. You may want this resource or service over here, but we also want to propose this particular initiative or project over here too. Uh, And I'm not going to say the agency, but I know like in over in Inglewood, there were like bike trails created. Uh, and this is Inglewood, Chicago, right? And it's really big. Like everybody talks about Inglewood. It's really huge. And, you know, you have a lot of uh, individuals who want to do good. They go to Inglewood. And, uh, you know, when you think about getting people, you know, uh, together and, and getting people out there and getting people, you know, healthy, uh, there are a lot of things that could come about. But bike trails, uh, and, you know, not knowing about the surrounding area in the violence, uh, people don't necessarily want to, you know, go out and ride a bike necessarily, right? That may not be on the top of their list or at the priority. So it's 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 very much about, uh, I'd say, like 
putting sugar on the medication. So, uh, or not sugar on the medication, but it, they, it's a sugar coating, right? So, uh, we want to give you this little bit here, but we also have another arterial motive that we're coming in with, uh, that may or may not help your community, but it's more about just raising the notoriety and giving uh, us something to say that we did. Uh, and it happens a lot with some agencies, especially here in Chicago. It, it does. And I'll say this for our community here in South Bend. Now, I don't live in South Bend. I live in Granger, which is a, a suburb, kind of probably like Inglewood, right? So we have mm -hmm. green parks. We have walking spaces. We have bike trails here. So what the mayor of South Bend began to do, he looked at different research and different things to make the community better. I think it's uh, they don't know how to work with us, for one. It's not yeah. that we're still in an environment where like they did some really bad things to us. When you look at the studies that they did on African-Americans, they did some really horrible things to our people that caused trauma. Right. We know that mm -hmm. bringing it present day, you do truly have people trying to help, but they don't know how to help. So what the mayor had said at one point was that, well, I invested money in parks because I read the research that said that, if you have a healthy park, it can bring forth a healthy environment. When you have green spaces, you have places to walk, you have places yeah. to ride your bike, it can transform a community, which the mm -hmm. research is strong on that, right? Yes. So I can't say he did it to hurt our community. He did it because it does exist here in Granger, right? And people use it. People are working out, they're running, you know, we know the benefits of exercise, right? Mm -hmm. We we know the benefits of eating healthy, but that's just one piece that he did to a damaged community. And so I'm always at the table saying, it's not a bad thing that he did. But one thing he did do was come to us and say, how can I work better with the African-American community? You know what I said? Mm -hmm. Ask them. Go yeah. into the African-American community and ask them, how can I help you? That's something that has not been done in our community. They do yeah, and I, I guess us, yeah. not with us. And I guess that was the, the point I, I, I didn't uh, clearly articulate is that it was very much, uh, like you said, you know, I think it was well-intentioned. Uh, and it was it was research based, right? So, or you know, something that says, okay, well, you know, people need to get out and work. But ultimately, what ended up happening was that the, these trails weren't being used by residents; they were being used by people in surrounding communities uh, for their purposes. Because, like you said, you know, the people who were there weren't they weren't asked. It was just, you know, hey, well, they say exercise needs to happen, and so we'll put these in. But was it something that was driven by the community? And uh, if people aren't using the trails, then I would say no. But yeah, I I, I completely agree. Uh, I mean, is there anything else that you want to add before we move on to the next segment? No. Okay. Uh, yeah, that was really fruitful, and I, it it took it went into a direction I didn't think it would go into, which is good. Uh, but I think also uh, that's I would imagine that's what really drives your work is that. Being able, well, seeing all this stuff that has happened in distressed communities, uh, your experiences working with young people have now informed your, your work now, right? And what you do and, and why you do it. Correct. Okay. Uh, so we're currently going to transition into the second segment. And uh, we call this segment the Big Five. big five or five existential questions that are aimed to get at the heart of who you are, your motivation, your inspiration, and your personal philosophy. Uh, we're going to allot about three minutes per question. And uh, just, just to make sure that the responses that you give, uh, people who are listening are able to take those and really use them to, to enrich their life and their, their current social impact practices. And so my first question to you, Amina, is uh, what do you think the role of a social venturist is in creating positive change in the world? And uh, just as a, as I do every on every 
podcast episode, I go and review what a social ventures is, uh, it's a term that I coined. And that essentially is uh, someone who uh, makes an investment of either time or money or their labor into making the world a better place. Because we all know that uh, the efforts that we put forth in terms of making the world a better place, like you think you mentioned uh, before we start recording, sometimes you don't get to see the fruit of that labor. And so, you know, the investment that you make, you don't know if it's going to make an impact, but you do it because you believe it will. And so uh, just to repeat the question, uh, what do you think the role of a social ventress is in creating positive change in the world? I, I think what we should look at is we do our work with the end in mind. We know what outcome we want to achieve. Mm-hmm. How do we engage those people that can see the vision of our end to do the work and it's a continual work of addition and subtraction this strategy didn't work so we're gonna go this way it's not i'm just gonna do this one thing and keep on going no it is a very rigorous type of work that we do but it's one that does create changes like taking a hand of rocks and throwing it in the water to create ripples. If we can create enough ripples in our environment, we can change how they function. We see this going on in many different communities across the world where they've said enough is enough. If we can just look at the issue of recycling, you know, how different Mm -hmm. countries have decided to reduce their carbon footprint they changed the behaviors of people, not only in that area, but in different areas of their life. So what are the things that we can do to change how we behave to make it a better place? Hmm. And that's personal change, correct? Personal change. Your personal change will grow into community change. I like and that. And that'll change the environment. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yes, I, I think that's that's spot on, especially when uh, when we talk about the work that we're doing, uh, because I think it also lends to people really uh, believing in you as a person and, 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 and it speaks to your authenticity uh, of your actions. How really well invested are you into doing the work? So if you change how you see the world and how you and how you react to things, uh, it will inform and also impact your ability to bring people on board uh, to make whatever, you know, to, to reach that final goal you're trying to reach and making the world a better place. Uh, so the second question I have is why do you, why do you believe your work is important? My, my work is simple. I build people. I can take everything out of it. And when I come to the basis of what I do, I build people so they can be better. Yeah. I don't care where you are in your life. I usually come in contact with people when they've asked for help. When I was younger, it started to happen. I would just be going about my business and all of a sudden this person would appear in front of me. And I'm like, oh, hi, I'm an extrovert. Hi, how are you? And they're like, oh, my God. Point blank, I was at Walgreens. This lady was frustrated because she needed to get to work. She didn't have a ride to work. I didn't know this lady out the blue. I said, hey, I'm actually going that way. I work there, right? Oh, I have an interview. I'm just so scared, blah, 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 blah. Turns out this lady was a runaway. She wasn't no lady. She was a kid. She was a runaway. She had drug issues and she was trying to make a change. And so as I rode with her in this car, I said, well, I wanted to tell you what I do. Here's my card. I actually work for an agency called the Swanson Center. We help people with substance abuse issues. If you don't get that job downstairs, please come upstairs 
and get help because you started a path toward doing better. And that is why you met me. I meet people when they want to do better. I am like a link to help them get to the next level. When the student is ready to learn, the teacher will appear. At the mm. same time the teacher is teaching, he is simultaneously learning. We're all teachers. So be careful what you teach your kids, what you teach your friends, what you teach your environment. Because we're like sponges. Yep. And if I can undo some of these pieces that these bad people have put out and replace it with good, I've done my job. Hmm. Okay. Uh, what, what do you want your legacy to be ultimately? I want all the seeds that I have planted in people to grow. When I die, I want my kids to remember all of the good things I taught them. I want the communities that I've worked in to remember the good things I brought them. Don't come to me with all the negative stuff that I did. Look mm -hmm. at the good. I'm not an immortal person. I make mistakes, but I try to do a lot more good than I do harm. I want my service to be my legacy. Mm. And, and what would that, that, that look like, your service as a, as a legacy? I basically can go into an organization, assess the organization, and build it from missing pieces. I will insert missing pieces into that organization to make it stronger. I do that with people as well. So mm -hmm. I can meet a person directly where they are and infuse pieces within them to make them better. So, yeah, no, okay. I, I'm with you now. So, and I, I think this is ultimately what we all leave behind when we, when we work with uh, anybody or anything is that, uh, that thing thriving, right? So the human being thriving or, or the organization thriving in itself is a legacy, correct? Correct. But when, what we must remember is it may not thrive. Yeah. It may just be better than it was before it came in contact with me. So if mm. whoever I come in contact with can be a little better than they were before they met me, that's a part of my legacy. Yeah. I agree. Big time. Uh, my next question is, uh, how does social impact work contribute to your personal growth? When I found myself in a lot of pain during different experiences I had in my life, um, I used to listen to a lot of gospel music. And one mm -hmm. of the songs that sticks out in my brain is um, Be Encouraged. And so in that song, it says, when you encourage others, you encourage yourself. And so as I began in helping people in my pain, I would come in contact with people that had worse stories than I had. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it made me say, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to get up and do what I need to do. It's not all about money. Sometimes it's about being there, being a listening ear for somebody to bounce a question off of, to break through on an issue they've been thinking about. Mm -hmm. that helps me because when I am stuck that person always comes or that thing or that book I'm reading pops up is that what I need to do to where I can get to clarity mm -hmm. 
during doing the process with people has allowed me to see that that is the same process that's going on with me. When I mm. am ready to learn and I take steps to learn it, it is given to me. That's deep. Learning is just not enough. It's when you learn something and you can teach it to somebody else, you've now mastered it. Oh, absolutely. So you got the law of attraction going on, but also too, uh, that that uh, that really deep. It's it's beyond uh, learning into it's a understanding, right? It's a uh, it's a spiritual uh, connection. Yeah, there we go. And 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 then from that, you're able to then go out because at that point it feels so natural. It's so secondhand. You're able to go and give it to other people it without any you. type of barriers. Yeah, it guides you. It's like your third eye. You heard of the third eye? It's oh, absolutely. Your third eye. Mm. Everybody has it. What is it that you were given to make you great in the world? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and here's my last question. Uh, and I guess you've already kind of touched upon it, but it would be nice to kind of really hear it flat out. Uh, how do you stay motivated to do the work when you're facing adversity or failure? I pray. Prayer is my ultimate motivator. I once listened to Les Brown, and he said, you have to look at positive material to motivate yourself every day, even beyond prayer. So when you start to connect prayer with meditation, with reflection, with just love, genuine love, you're able to continue to do this work. It's like you're filling yourself back up because this world can zap you. Yep. But when I get my prayer rug out, I lower myself to my knees in the most lowest position of what we call sujud. It's where your head meets the ground with your hands on it, on the ground. Mm -hmm. You're recharging your body. You're connecting yourself with the earth. You're restoring yourself to go out here and deal with it again. If you don't do that, if you don't have something that makes you better that you do, some people go shopping, some people go get their nails done. I don't don't need none of that. Mm -hmm. I need to be filled up with a higher spirit Because that higher spirit provides love. It provides mercy. It provides grace, which we all need a lot of. Yeah. Not things. I don't need things. You can't take the things with you. Yeah. It's funny because uh, I, I, I think in principle, we understand that. But, you know, the more money you make and the older you get, uh, it's, it's, it's sad to say, but, you know, life for a lot of people becomes very shallow and uh, and they themselves are no longer grounded, even though they're doing powerful work like this. Uh, but you, taking that time out to really just reconnect back to the essence of it all and, you know, however, however that reads for, for a person that's, you know, it's their business, but to take that time back to reconnect and to reground themselves is important. But I feel like a lot of people just, that's not how they, they, they spend their, their, their alone time. And it's sad. And that's how you get burnout. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that was good. So we're going to move on to the last segment and uh, I thank you for toughing it out with me, but yeah, just a lot of heavy, great content so far, but uh, this last segment is called 10 Toes Down. And so this gives an opportunity for anybody who's listening uh, that is in, in your area or in the area of people that are in when you're within your network 
to get involved. So, uh, Amina, I'm not sure if there's any opportunities that you know of uh, that you are offering or that are within your network where people can go out and volunteer to give back. Um, there are always opportunities available. So um, some of the work that I'm doing is I'm raising money for our um, daycare. So I'm getting ready to do a, I create fundraisers for people. Mm -hmm. I'm getting ready to do a fundraiser for our daycare in March. Um, so um, I would ask people to look at my page and really help support that effort. Um, if they're wanting to give back financially to anything, um, there are, um, I'm on like a couple groups, like the forum for um, economic development, community and economic development. We're really looking at the lead issues. So mm -hmm. in, in your areas, there's a lot of money coming down the pipe for um, removing lead within these houses that were built um, before 1978. Um, there are federal dollars, um, state and state dollars that some communities are being given to help abate or remove the lead. Um, so if you live in one of these distressed communities, there's finally a little bit of relief um, because some of it is attached to home improvement as well. You can get up to $5,000 here in South Bend to remodel a portion of your home, like maybe your roof is bad or maybe your plumbing is bad. Um, you must have uh, the priority goes to families that have kids under the age of 19 mm -hmm. um, with the heaviest priority going to those that have kids under the age of six in their houses because we know that lead affects those that are pregnant and those that are under the age of six. I mean, you all look at Flint, so. Yeah, so that's a huge opportunity that's coming um, down the pipe from a federal and state level. Mm -hmm. um, with that, there are various contracting opportunities for people to have construction businesses and to become trained in removing lead. There's a shortage of contractors in that area that are skilled and qualified to remove lead. So if some of you guys are out there wanting to start a business, a lot of money is being looked at into construction companies. Um, so what I'll do is if and after the after we get done recording, uh, I just kind of grab that information from you and I'll just tag it to this episode. Wonderful. Okay. Uh that's awesome. I'm sorry, did I cut you off, Amina? Nope. Um, I, I was just saying, you know, people, when we, we start thinking of our businesses that we want to open up, everything doesn't have to be a product that we're selling. Mm -hmm. We need to start looking at solutions to fix our communities. And they give us the information. We just need to know how to find it to create those businesses because that's what they're doing. Yep. Uh, I, is there anything else that you would like to add that wasn't necessarily said throughout the, the episode? I would just like to say that I am very passionate. If you haven't noticed about the work I am. that I do, <laughs> <laughs> but it's time that I get paid for what I do, you know, yeah. I'll give you information like I just gave you that information. Some people will take it and run with it. Some people will do nothing with it. But mm -hmm. value me like you value the hair that you may go and buy on a weekly basis, right? Yeah. I, I have a family to feed too. You know, people, when we're consultants, that means the knowledge that we have, that we share with you, that is our service. And we deserve to get reimbursed for that service. There's Absolutely. going to be no more picking brains. Picking brains mean you want to sit down with me to develop a contract oh, yeah. because I need to feed my family. Just yeah. like there, there are a lot of nonprofits out here. They get awards for doing this work and they get paid to do it. Mm -hmm. But as a consultant, you're looked down at for doing this work and expecting to get paid for it. Yes. We need to change that narrative. That's what I'm trying to do with this podcast. Uh, 
and like I mentioned to you earlier before we started recording, it's all about illuminating uh, the different uh, stakeholders that are involved in social impact work and, and consultants. Uh, they're part of that, that this, this, the, the, the circle and they deserve the same type of respect uh, because the passion, as people are listening to this episode, the passion is there. It isn't like you're feigning it. It's there. Uh, you just you, you chose a route uh, that was that's different uh, than having your own 5013C. And that, that doesn't make you any less uh, passionate uh, or caring uh, or involved uh, than someone who does. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm completely with you 100%. Uh, and so I will leave it there. Uh, I do thank you, Amina, for coming on. Uh, I thank you for sharing your insights and your wisdom and your passion and your energy, uh, especially this time in the morning. Uh, what I needed is definitely energized me to go out there and tackle the, uh, tackle the things I have to do. And so, uh, I'll leave our conversation off with the saying that I, I say to everybody that I usually come in contact with, uh, but it's to continue to live in kind. And that essentially is, you know, throughout your daily life, as you're encountering people to give back, because we know that, you know, as we give back, those things come back to us. And so uh, I want to say to everybody who's listening, uh, to you and Mina, uh, to continue to live in kind and to take care. Bye.